growing up, he was a little bit different from the other fathers. He left early, he was home really late. Um, he had his own business, he had like a score of people working for him. He would have meetings, but never in the office. They were always on car parks and at the end of gardens and warehouses. There was always a lot of money and there was always, the people were quite unorthodox as well. Some of them were quite rough people, but uh, on the outside, he did look, he looked a great businessman. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. As a child, Jason Wilson thought he had a regular dad. But by the time he was a teenager, his old man was on the way to becoming one of the UK's most wanted criminals. From his beginnings as a successful businessman, Tony Shipley, who later changed his name to Tony Spencer, had a driving ambition to be rich and to beat the system to get there. But during his career, robbing banks, counterfeiting cash, and eventually becoming a prolific drug smuggler, the big one always evaded him. In his new book, The Old Man and Me, Jason details an incredible journey into the underworld of the Netherlands and Spain, where his father sourced drugs, mixed with some of the biggest names in organised crime, and finally came a cropper of his own success. Today, Jason tells me the story of his father and their relationship which endured long stints in prison, selfish ambition and a miraculous escape from an assassination attempt. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Just start by telling me who you are and who is the old man. So the old man is my father, uh, Tony Spencer. He was born Tony Shipley. um, And he was a a career criminal in the end. He started out as a businessman. Uh, He was a a very good businessman, really. um, But he was also a a bit of a villain as well. Uh, And that villainy was something he really got a buzz out of. So rather than leave it behind, he carried on with it, even when he was running successful businesses. Uh, and in the end, it was the thing that really brought him down. Um, mm. He had some successful businesses in Coventry. He ended up robbing a bank. He got 10 years. And then after that, he never went back to a legitimate business again. They were always fronts after that. And just to place his importance as a as a criminal, as an organised criminal, at one point, the National Crime Agency um, named him as one of their number one targets. Yeah, that was right, yeah. And at that point, it was for shipping drugs between the UK, Holland and Spain and bringing in cannabis from Morocco. So we'll get to we'll get to that. But that's just to sort of give him a level in the world of organised crime and how significant he was. Um, so your own childhood, just remind me and give me a little bit of an, uh, an insight into what that was like and at what point you realised that your father uh, may have been slightly different to the ordinary. Okay, I, I was raised in Coventry with my brother and sister. Uh, it was quite a standard upbringing. Um, Mum was always there. Dad was always out, always at work. Um, growing up, he was a little bit different from the other fathers. He left early. He was home really late. Um, you realise most fathers work nine to five jobs or in factories, like many fathers do in Coventry. Um, he had his own business. He had like a score of people working for him. And he had all these shops and um, he, he was quite a businessman, dealt with a lot of money, got used to seeing a lot of money all the time. Uh, he was quite unorthodox. He would have meetings, but never in the office. They were always on car parks and at the end of gardens and warehouses. They were never, so things were never quite 
and he dealt with a there was always a lot of money and there was always the people were quite unorthodox as well they were some of them were quite rough people but uh on the outside, he, he did look. He looked a great businessman. And as a as a child, I suppose you wouldn't have realised that that was different because you knew no different. No, you've got no no comparisons really. You see the the business people on the TV. I know he's nothing like that. He's his own person. Um, but um, like I say, it's just very different. I, there's no other father like him, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and like I said, you do get used to seeing so many people and so many businesses and accepting so many, many things as normal. And a lot, of, a lot of it was just seeing a lot of money all the time. And I think mm. most of it was legitimate. But later I'd understand he'd been involved in bank robberies and post office jobs and that sort of thing. Uh, that, that was quite standard. There was quite a few businessmen who were involved in that sort of thing. He was a little bit different because he would go hands-on and he'd want to, he'd, he'd be there doing it himself, uh, which is quite unusual. So did you have a kind of privileged childhood? Was the money flowing into the household and was that being spent on you guys? I mean, you'd think so. Um the thing was, he was only ever out for about a three-year period. So he would come out, set up all these businesses, make lots of money, and then over-expand, over-expand, and then things would implode over something, and he would end up inside. He'd, then he'd go away a couple of years and come back out again and start over. And he was always starting over, becoming very big, very quick. Um, but he never invested in the home. It was always in the businesses. Um, mm. So it's like when we lived in Nuneaton, we were living in a terraced house, and I go to work and see like hundreds of thousands of pounds and just couldn't compute why none of this money was really getting home, why we didn't have a luxury house and all this sort of thing, which when you mm. watch things like Dallas on the TV, all the rich businessmen all have big houses. And we, we never did. We lived in a small terrace and we were quite happy in that. It was just a bit, a bit of a discrepancy there. So what age were you when your father went to prison the first time and what was that for? Um, I was, well, he'd been in prison when I was little and I didn't know about it. He was in prison when I was seven. I used to go visit him. Didn't know it was a prison. I thought it was a college. But it was uh, 11 years old when he got done for bank robbery. That's when I was told, look, he's gone to prison. You're now going to start visiting your father on every Sunday, um, or last Sunday of every month. And that's when it really came home. He lost all his businesses. Uh, and I suppose we struggled a great deal. You had bailiffs, letters, and phone cut off and all this sort of thing. And... Uh, that's when things changed, when he went away for the bank robbery, he got 10 years. So when you were seven, you were going to the prison, you thought it was a college. And did you, were you able to completely swallow that story? That's a pretty good story yes. to give a child. You kind of, you come up to the prison. Now, I do remember the words were HMP something. And at seven, you haven't, you haven't got a clue what HMPs is. You don't watch porridge or you're just saying this is what a college is. And it was an open prison as well. You had swing, they had swings outside the inmates had made, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it wasn't a prison. And uh, we used to go meet in the huts, but he could never get out of his seat and come out and play with us. But I actually enjoyed the prison visits because we actually were like a family. You could take food in. So you'd have a picnic at the table. And he was never, he wasn't going to work. He was just sitting there and we'd just talk for a few hours. And I've never done that with my father. Just sit at a table and have him listen to you, ask about your school and everything. Because he'd always been on the move, always at work. And so I enjoyed these visits to the open prison. It was like a big day out. Sounded like quite a progressive prison that they were also involved in handling the childhood visits like that. Yeah, so I think it's just because it was a Cat D prison and a few mm. things were you're very focused as a child. You just think this is a college, it's quite strict. For some reason, the warders are wearing um, uniforms. I thought that was a little bit odd, but I didn't know what a college was, so I just assumed this is what a college is. Uh, mm. And at the end, the, the, the prison was away from the huts, the visiting area. 
So at the end of the, uh, the visit, we'd go back to the cars. And if we lingered, you see them taking the inmates up the, up the trail, up the gravel track up to the prison. Um, that was a little bit odd. And it's only later you figure that, well, that was must have been a prison. But at the time, it's just, this is what college is. Mm. This is education. And that's what I thought he was there for, because that's what he talked about. He talked about doing air certificates and uh, studying law and accountancy. And that was actually what he was doing, because he had these ideas for these businesses when he did leave prison. And as it turns out, that's exactly what he did. He built quite big businesses that made a lot of money. I want to come back to that because that's an interesting correlation with other people who have, I suppose, used their time well in prison, but unfortunately come out and then used it for for criminal purposes. But at 11 then, when you realise that he's been jailed and for a bank robbery, um, what's that like going in and visiting him then? That that was completely different because, first, I mean, the prison itself was better than what I thought it would be because your images are all off the television and there's a lot of glass, which I didn't expect. I thought it would be all bars and wire and you get there and the, the warders put a bit of effort in to be friendly. Um, so the prison, the visits wasn't too bad. I, really, the difficulty was at home. You're worried about people knowing your father's in prison. There's a, you're aware of stigma and what people might think. And I think the numbers that were in prison back then were far less than they are now. Um, and so it was a real serious thing. You just didn't want your friends knowing, your teachers knowing. Um, and you you kind of had a certain amount of denial. You thought, he's got 10 years. And as an 11-year-old, I think, okay, we can get through this 10 years or six years, as he's telling me it's going to be. Um, mm. So it's kind of denial. Get your heads down. We're going to get through this. And it's, it's going to be a bit of a struggle, but we'll we'll do it. Were you the only kid in the class who had a parent in prison? I never told a single friend when I was at school. Uh, it was something I always kept to myself. Um, I mean, that's something I did learn off my dad. You always kept your mouth shut. You kept you kept your things to yourself. Um, so mm. I never found out if I, there was any other kids who had a father inside. Statistically, there must have been. But it was a case of keeping it to myself. It's just me, my brother's sister, mom. It was our secret. And we, we just kind of worked together to get through it somehow was the initial idea. Mm-hmm. And were your parents still together at that point or were they beginning to separate? They were together. Um, the first year was okay doing the visits, but there was a bit of a strain. Um, I think there's a big financial strain. That starts to kick in after a while. And you realise all these friends and my dad's who were supposed to be marvellous don't actually help that much. They talk about helping and they tell people they're helping, but a lot of them, they just don't help at all. So it's kind of you relying upon family. Uh, the state, I don't know what support the state offered. They didn't seem to offer a lot, as my recall was. Um but it is just relying on family. Without family, I think we would have been stuffed, to be honest. Mm. I mean, you do hear of kids being put in care and that sort of thing. And I think a few people did say that sort of thing. We should go in care while my mum could get things sorted because we, uh, we were on the edge of losing the house as well. It was all, from her point of view, it was just a strain from one day to the next. Um, it must have been a huge struggle for her. And actually, she did very well in hindsight to keep you together and to keep the wolves from the door. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a thing. She had a few sisters that uh, pitched in. And it was a case of my dad, there was that much debt when he went to prison. It was trying to keep the phones on, the gas on, the electric on, uh, keeping the landlord from not evicting us. It was just all those things. Uh, and like I said, we were, in this, we were in a different terrace by that point, And it was an area where we didn't know anyone. So there was no support network. And it was a place where we were having to move schools again. So you don't want the stigma of being the new kid who goes to school who's got a father's inside. So, and I was fortunate also because 
he changed his name from uh, uh, Shipley to Spencer, so he had a different surname. So when it was over the newspapers, um, people didn't really connect it so easily. So teenage years then, um, formative in one way, did you think at all at any point that what he had done was cool or were you kind of into it or did your mother steer you away from, did she sort of indicate to you, look, crime is bad and this is what happens when you get caught? Um well, visitor, when you visit the prison, you see you, you're filled with a lot. You've got a big room of people, all big blokes, uh, and they've all done something wrong to be there. So it, it's kind of normalised a little bit. My father, he tried to say, look, lots of people make mistakes. You know, there's a, you're full of a room here with people making mistakes. That's, that's just life for you. That's the way. He, whereas my mum was like, no, it was wrong. You shouldn't have done it. It was simple as that. Um, so you're kind of torn between the two. Uh, but there's no part of you that think this is great what he did or anything. It was a, it's a disastrous, really. Um, you look at all the damage it caused, but there was no going back. You've got to, it is what it is, accept it, and you've got to move forward. And that's the way you're going to get through this is moving forward, not by blaming people or saying you've made mistakes. Because he'd worked hard, he'd built up businesses, he'd done all the right things, but in the end he'd done something wrong to try and save it. Um, so we were kind of very forgiving about it. Uh, but there was no it's cool or anything about it at all. After the bank robbery, wh- what time does he emerge from prison at and what's going on at that point? He emerges at about 87, 88. Um, I'm, a, I'm a teenager at this point. I've gone to college. I'm at art college, a bit of a geeky kid. Uh, he turns up a um, little bit grey, not as in- intimidating as he was. My, my, my parents have divorced by that point. So the last few years of his sentence, I haven't seen him. Um, so he returns and it's quite evident he's got big plans again he's going to build big businesses yet again but this time i don't really know what they are but i do know he's kind of got a lot on he he does have money on him and he has these big plans that he's going to be making a a hell of a lot of money within just like a month or so and this turns out to be the counterfeit of american dollars which he's been working on while he was in prison and he's recruited a whole team of inmates from the prisons to actually work on this um so it's American dollars. It's all high tech. Uh, apparently the dollars were very good and the FBI were kind of concerned about, about this. And then later on, they send their people over. But from the moment he leaves prison this time, he's got, a, he's got police surveillance on him 24-7. And that's quite standard. So um, when I did go and see him, we used to go out in the car. He'd be looking for cars behind him and he'd rationalise it to me. This is what happens when you leave prison. Um, you get followed and you get watched and this sort of thing. And I'm a, I'm nearly 17 years old at the time and I believe all this sort of thing. But it's apparent he's up to something. I just don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like diamonds or drugs. I've just no idea. Um, and I did, it didn't occur to me that you'd you'd counterfeit dollars the way he would turn out to do it. And what was his what was his great plan with that? What was he doing? And it obviously didn't work out because he lands back in the dock, of course. Um, well, while he, while he was away, he always had a lot of national contacts anyway. But while he'd been away, his, his contacts and all all over Europe had increased. Like he had a lot of Italian contacts, Irish contacts, Dutch contacts. Uh, so the American dollars were going to go all around Europe. Um, so it, it was just a case he thought he was going to make millions out of this within like a year. Um, mm. And apparently that did, did look likely. Um, but then, like I said, he had this surveillance operation on him. And in the end, they got one of his people and turned him. Uh, and at that point, he just has to go on the run. But he was only out for about six months before he was out on the run again. Um, mm-hmm. And he's on the run for 12 months and is eventually caught under a false identity. And later on, they discover it's him. He goes on trial. Um, 
and it's like a, it's a hell of a long trial. Uh, but in the end, he gets his guilty. Uh, in the end, he's defended himself as well as uh, his own lawyers have to resign uh, simply because they've been compromised. Uh, but he gets 11 years. His aspirations for making good with that uh, forgery scam was certainly believed by the prosecution because their case against him was that he had hoped to make something like 125 million out of it. Yeah, initially it was 250 million and it kind of came down as they argued the case. Um, so by the time you get to court, you're still in the millions. It's not making much difference, but the numbers, they're not so eye grabbing. Uh, but in the end, he just, he could, he, yeah, he just couldn't beat it really. Uh, mm. he, he was optimistic right up to the end, but then it, a few weeks from the end, he destroyed some evidence and got them for contempt of court. His, his lawyers had to uh, step down and that's how he ended up representing himself and getting a guilty. Uh, but it, from his point of view, he'd almost beat it. Now, we spoke a bit earlier about a number of um, things to, about him. And firstly, that he was at his heart a businessman who I would think from your book, from reading it, had an addiction to crime. And he just kept going back and back and back to that. But he also did educate himself within the prison system, as you mentioned. And he was an intelligent man who believed that he could beat the system. And sometimes he did beat the system, but other times he didn't. But he always had a go, didn't he? Whenever he was brought up uh, before the courts, he'd, he'd always believe that he could beat that system. Yeah, it was a big challenge for him, and it was part of part of what he did. Really, he actually—I wouldn't say he enjoyed it with it, but it was part of the process. You know, once you get caught, it's the start of a whole new game of the kind of you're playing lawyers, where there's going to be this court case. You're going to delay the court case as long as you can to get as much disclosure as you can, and to break down their evidence as much as you can. And then it's going to be the longest trial because the longest trial you're more likely to get a, a not guilty, and more often you, because he was quite professional the charge is always going to be conspiracy because he's not going to get caught hands-on because he's always keeps things at a distance and is very experienced. Um, so by the time he's arrested and then the time he's sentenced, usually about two years has passed. That's two years off your sentence. And then you can look forward and say, well, I'm going to be cat C in 12 months. And then all of a sudden you can see when you're going to be getting out. Um, so these long trials and this long period getting to trial, they kind of come off the sentence, but they give you a, the motivation while you're serving your sentence. So those first few years, you're a romantic uh, prisoner, and it's an easier. It's easy when you've got a bit of meaning to what you're doing every day. You've got all this. Mm. You've got this case to beat. You've got all these lawyers to beat, and you've got few resources, and they've got so many. And it's a real motivator and a real challenge. It's a coping skill, really, I suppose, to get over the boredom of prison and uh, to give him a focus. And obviously, then after each guilty verdict, he considered appeals and you know, went down those legal routes. You kind of, he's thrown himself into education, but also into other prisoners' cases. Um, so who might be a benefit to you at a later date? So if you're wealthy organisations and crime families, when they're, when they're inside, they're not too great at doing their own legal work. And my dad was very good at legal work. He was so good that his, his later barristers would have hired him if he kept clean. But, um, but he was that good. So we would take on cases for a lot of Irish cases, um, cases on the continent, a lot of Dutch cases, and he would do them. But it meant when he came out, if he'd got people off, he had contacts who'd do anything for him once he was out. It was like contacts for life sort of thing. 
It's kind of something mm. you can never measure. So the ultimate jailhouse lawyer, really, he was the one who was advising them and picking holes in, in the prosecution case. And also he, was mm. a, he used to run businesses when he was inside. So even though he was inside, he was always very busy when he was inside. What sort of business was he running when he was inside? He was sort of hustling from within, was he? It was just hustling. It made like he had a, like a, a photography business while he was inside. And he, he would do, um, you know, like the inmates want pictures of families on cups and photographs. And he would run that when he was inside. And some of the times they're genuine businesses, but also they're fronts to get hold of certain things. Like he, mm. used, he used these things to get hold of certain papers for the counterfeit. And it was a way of doing that as well. So often these businesses would be little fronts as well. Now, all the time he's in prison, uh, he's also making contacts, as you've mentioned before, and he's deepening those connections with Europe, which is very important around this time. I think it's around 1996 when he comes out of prison this time. And that really are, that's the golden days for drug trafficking, isn't it? The, where, the place to be is, is in Amsterdam, down in the Costa del Sol. Everybody's making connections the Colombians are starting to send representatives over to Amsterdam, the supermarket of drugs. And there's all various characters. I don't know whether you ever came across the likes of Curtis Warren or Christy Kinnan. All these people are floating around um, Amsterdam and they're all mingling. And, and I'm sure, look, well, it's not maybe a popular thing to say. I'm sure it was a really exciting world to get involved in that hustle and, you know, the challenge of beating the systems, getting those drugs in and pocketing a fortune. And obviously your father saw that as his next uh, career step. Yeah. I mean, when he was inside, he was he was dealing when he was inside for he was supplying a few prisons when he was inside. Uh, and it was, uh, I mean, I was broke. I was in London at the time. I was a young animator at the time. And I'd He'd been away for 13 of the previous 15 years, so it was kind of me wanting to get to know him again and kind of giving him another chance, even though he'd, he'd really messed things up a few times. Uh, but when I did meet him and he was on his prison leaves, you'd pick him up and it, it, he'd have his phone and he'd have a few phones and then he'd have his SIM cards and it'd be constant phone calls talking in embassies and super kings, uh, which later I, I later would learn would be the code they would use uh, for, for drugs. Um mm. But he was very busy when he was inside, just building up for when he was outside. Um, so he was kind of raring to go by the time he did get released. And he did see it as, compared to what he'd done before, this was quite easy. It was like selling things in units and uh, the organisation. And it was re- it was really made for that, I would say. So when you started sort of uh, engaging with him more at this point of your life, you're broke, you're struggling to, in a career that, <laughs> I don't know, is there lots of money in animation or is it very difficult to... It's a, it's a difficult one, but it was changing. It was becoming computerised by the mid-90s. Um, so I was working in London. I've been working in that area for about seven years and it just wasn't working out after a while. Um, so I returned to Coventry and my dad had just been released and I was just trying to earn enough just to get by. And then I meet him and he's he's like 45, 46 at an age. You know, I'm, I'm in my 20s, I think, at that age, my dad should be slowing down. He's, he's done all this time inside. He should be, he should be not quite an old man, but he should be getting there. But he's nothing like that at all. He's just like a young man again. He's like full of energy. These phones constantly going, constantly going to all these meetings, um, and constantly helping people as well. You meet him, and he's like, "Well, what do you need?" And yeah, I'll get you some phones. And look, here's here's a loan. Just take it. Pay me whenever. Um, you need a car? I can get you. A, you know, sort you a car out. He was just helping everybody. This wasn't me. This was this was lots of people he would just meet, and a lot of these people would go and work for him as drivers. 
Um, for a good while, I held back because I, one, I was a little bit aloof. Um, I knew he was mixed up in, I mean, it was cigarette smuggling he claimed to be doing. And initially, that's what I thought he was doing. And it wasn't something I approved of that much. But at the same time, what was he supposed to do? He'd spent all these times away. And the argument was, is cigarette smuggling, is it really causing anyone any harm? You're selling cigarettes to people who want cigarettes at a cheaper price. There's not really a great argument for saying it's wrong or... Um, so I just let him, I let him be, but then I started to interact with him and this sort of thing and be more accepting of him and accept help off him, which I wouldn't initially. Uh, and gradually I got to know him again after all those years away. And you ended up sort of working with him as such or certainly helping him out as a driver and things like that. Do you think in hindsight, looking back now as more mature individual and in a better place maybe in life that, did he want you to get involved? Did he sort of, lure you in to his world or were you did you willingly go um i mean i willingly went it was but it was it was a case if you were working for my dad you'd see him and if you weren't you didn't so it's a case it was very practical and he was very tied up in what he did so we'd phone you if he wanted something or if he had something to offer you you know would you want this what do you think of this i've got a car going do you want it um so he was very much like that um so, yeah, I was kind of willingly, I needed to earn money. I needed to try some new ideas. The ideas I've been working with hadn't really worked. Uh, and he was my dad at the end of the day. And the things he was doing seemed to be working really well. And everyone around him was full of such praise for him because here he was, people who were broke suddenly had jobs, they suddenly had cars, their families suddenly had money again. Um, and there was very little downside. And like I said, he appeared to just to be doing cigarettes, which... I had no moral objection to. I don't smoke or anything, but I accept them. You know, it's a, it's just a business at the end of the day. So did being his son give you a certain status within his organisation? It meant that I was trusted because just because you're related, it means generally you're trusted. Um, and there, there is, certain, you know, being brought to you do keep, learn to keep your mouth shut about certain things, um, not gossip, uh, that sort of thing. And you've got a loyalty as well. You can ask you to do things that you wouldn't ask other people and you'll do it obediently just because you're his son. Um, mm. So that, that's part and parcel of being a family, really. And did it shield you from the violence of that world? No, I mean, that, that was one of the things when I started to learn that he was involved in drugs and all these cigarettes, they weren't cigarettes at all, they were drugs. When he's on the phone, he's saying, I'm going to get you 50 embassies. He's on about getting you 50 kilos of hash is what he means. Once I'm into that world... I do expect there to be a lot of violence, but there's very little that is the surprising element. And I think some of that is because he's older and the people he deals with, they're all people he's been inside with and he knows they're, not, they're, they're consistent individuals. They're not troublesome. Um, so it just tends to just run like clockwork, like a business, which is what surprises me. It's very efficient. Mm. And that's what it's about. It's about efficiency and profit. They're very reluctant to have any problems or to have problem people working for them. So you don't want people who stand out. You want people who are nondescript. And you want pe- you don't want people who go around boasting around the town at the weekend what they've done that week. You want people to keep their mouths shut, uh, who don't draw attention to themselves, who don't have drug problems if you can help it. Um, you don't want them having drink problems if possible. If they smoke, that's fine. But you want people who are efficient and sober-headed and experienced. Uh, because you, if you have those people, things move very smoothly and very easily. Um and when you don't have those people, you tend to have problems. Um, so that's what surprised mm. me, how efficient it was. He did, did run it just like a business. And that's the mm. way it operated. 
a lot of the trouble can be caused by um, individuals within groupings who have a fondness to taking the cocaine because, of course, the coke makes them talk uh, inappropriately. But just talk me through that then up until, I suppose, it's 2000 or 2001 when things start going wrong for him. But he's been in and out of prison as well a little bit during this period. Yeah. Um, so, nine, so this is um, 96, 97, 98. Um, and I said for a few years, he's, he's probably the biggest importer outside, you know, in central England, outside London. Um, and it's always amphetamine and hash. He doesn't deal in coke and he doesn't deal in heroin. Uh, and I've asked him about that and he said he wouldn't touch the heroin just because he'd seen what it did to people inside. And the coke, his arguments were slightly different. Um, on coke, he said the sentences for coke were too high, but he also said the surveillance was too intense. He says, if you have a surveillance on you when you're doing hash, it's like a class B or C, the surveillance is only on you for a while and then they go off and leave you alone. So if you notice you've got police surveillance on you, you just carry on as normal. And if they think nothing's going on or they can't get any evidence, they just move off. He says, that's not the case with cocaine. They'll just stay there. So there were practical reasons for him not dealing with cocaine as well. Uh, I mean, he'd, he'd had 10 year sentences, but he didn't want to have a 20 year sentence. Uh, with hash and amphetamine, you were looking at, 12s, 8s, 6s. So that's that's bearable considering what he'd done before. I've heard that quite a lot, that in particularly around that period and up until the early noughties, I suppose, that particularly in Spain, that drug trafficking was looked on with two different sets of eyes. The hash trafficking was pretty much acceptable. Um, the drugs being landed on the beaches from Morocco. And yeah, the cocaine, they, they absolutely handled that differently altogether from a law enforcement point of view. And presumably it was the same in the Netherlands, which are the two key areas. Um, so he was again using, I suppose, his business mind and his education, his intelligence to consider the landscape there and consider the risks and weigh it up as opposed to maybe some younger people getting involved. They just see there's more money in Coke. The younger, younger ones would tend to, when we had younger contact, you'd see they want to get, get into the Coke because it was easier. Mm. My old man, because he did a cooker business and all this years ago, he used to think big scale. So he used to think, well, if you're doing hash, if you're doing it by the hundreds of keys, you're going to make more than the guys who are doing the tens of keys in the, in the cocaine anyway. So you just think big and do it in bulk. So he kind of went that way. Um, mm. But he, did, he was very confident on how fast he could turn things over. So like I said, he was supplying most of central England, but then up to Glasgow and over to Ireland and down to Brighton. He was very like I said, he, 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 he'd say he'd get 800 keys on a Monday. He'd be gone within 48 hours. He was hours. prolific, Jason, really. But he, it was a certain professional pride in that. No matter how, what the order came in, the risk factor, you had a risk of 48 hours and it'd all be gone. Then after that, it was just money coming in. And money, you haven't got the risk with money that you have with the actual goods. Um, mm. But he was just so efficient at that. And that's why I say it did run like a business most of the time incredibly well. And the problems always came with people on the edges who were, they weren't disciplined, they were, or weren't our people, but we had to work with. And then they would have problems with, which would come our way. And then often it would be my dad who would resolve these problems. And a lot of it would resolve them through phone calls rather than violence or anything. Violence was very rare, uh, mm. but it was always phone calls. Uh, you tend to have a group in one city, you've got a conflict with those in another city, and there's a misunderstanding, usually around a few people in the middle who are maybe thieving or something or made mistakes and you need to smoothen the whole thing out so people can carry on operating and get that efficiency back. Um, mm. Because like he used to explain to me, 
when you have you have these problems, it just costs money. The easiest thing is to resolve it. And even if you lose some money, because you're making money, you get it back very quick. It's just impractical to halt business because you're having a fallout with somebody. So it was very clear. You, you don't make enemies and you don't make enemies of your drivers either. You treat your drivers well because your drivers are the ones who will grass you up later. So when people leave your business, you've got to leave on good terms. So later on, they don't start talking to the serious crime squad and all this sort of thing. Um, so mm. he handled his drivers very well. And some business, some of the other people didn't. And later on, their drivers, you'd see that he was right. They would turn, they would, uh, they would turn grasses and they would inform. But my dad's drivers never did that. So that mm. was that was very shrewd. But again, that was that business brain thinking. So while he was up operating, um, or so he thought, largely under the radar and supplying vast quantities of drugs into the UK and Ireland, uh, he did come on the radar of the NCA, uh, the, then SOCA, I think. It was a, yeah, it was a regional at the end of the 90s. They're the ones mm. that we were based in Nuneaton at a place called Paul Road at the time. Um, we'd, had the, um, we'd had the police surveillance on us, which was new to me. Um, I thought you get surveillance on you, you kind of shut down, you move, and no, apparently you don't. You just carry on and wait for them to go. But then you start with trackers on your cars as well, and you realise they're coming in, they know there's something going on. And then you get bugs in caravans where you're having meetings and you're kind of sweeping things regularly and everything, but you know they're kind of coming and there's and the next step's undercover op, uh, officers, they come in. And in, mm. in this instance, he spotted the undercover straight away. Um, so we had this period where we're having to work and we've got undercover police officers around. And for me, that was the time where I stepped out because it, um, it was way too serious and you can just see where this is going. And as I'm saying, I would be high up on the list just because of that association. Um, So I kind of retreated from any risky work and a few others did as well. But my father didn't. He just carried on. He's just quite indifferent to it, really. It's like, um, so you've got trackers, you've got surveillance, you've got undercover officers, you've got a helicopter going over, you know, just checking out the layout of the place. And he still carries on. He sees Mm. this is part of the business we're in. You've always got to accept there's always going to be surveillance now and then. And he's moving about Europe a lot as well. He's he's moving in and out of the UK and yeah, I mean he goes into Europe. He always goes Europe. He always drives. Doesn't doesn't take a flight because they leave records. And you could take the ferry back in those days. And if he went over as a passenger, he wouldn't even be on the record. Um, mm. So that's what they would do. And they would just drive between Spain and Holland, and they'd do silly hours driving. There'd always two guys in a car just taking turns. Uh, and that's how he used to do his meetings. He used to go there for a week, do all his meetings, and come back and then carry on here. Um, mm. but it's always very very business-like. It was just going from business meeting to business meeting, and that's the way he seemed to see it. I noticed um, in your book at the time he was shot, and we'll talk about that in the Netherlands, he has a girlfriend and uh, she's knocking around. And how does he have time for that? He seems to be really busy. Was he a, was he a womanizer? He, he, was a, he was a womanizer as a young man and probably as an older man, to be honest. It was quite... It was quite standard. He'd have, he'd have his regular girlfriend, and then he'd have another girlfriend, and then another girlfriend, and it it was a it was a bit silly because he he didn't really have the time to devote. To, they weren't really relationships. They were just I don't know if they were hobbies or whatever, just relief from work, I suppose. Um, but that that was kind of I just saw that that was his private business, and he and my mum had long divorced anyway, so that's just I kind of just accepted mm. that's the way he was. He, he, he was never. He, Never used to show off about it or boast about it. It was just very modest. His private life, he did keep private the best he could anyway. Mm. It's kind of part of the territory, though, isn't it, to have, you know, within that world that 
you know, it's very sort of full of alpha males and they do have that sort of setup where there will be a collection maybe of women, all of whom are kind of looked after by the money. Maybe it's a way of spending the money, is it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's just their own little area. I suppose they're kind of appreciated. The other woman here, he's appreciated, put on a pedestal. And if she's busy or whatever, or he's not getting attention, there's another woman and there's another woman. And I think a lot of the people were like that. Uh, mm. I mean, uh, money attracts women is one of the things that you kind of I noticed was it was just it was just a given really they didn't have to mm-hmm. spend time looking for women because the women came to them because if people know they've got money all of a sudden they become more attractive and what they can provide becomes more attractive and are the women largely acceptant of the fact that the men will be absent are they acceptant of the fact that there might be another woman do they sort of uh, enjoy the fruits of the wealth and ignore and turn a blind eye to things that maybe in a standard relationship women wouldn't? They probably turn, did turn a blind eye to a great deal. Um, I mean, there were certain rewards. He was never he never went over the top with money, and that's it might be he had a bit of the flashiness when he was younger, but by the time his 40s, he was very immaterialistic. And I think some of that comes from being inside so long. You realise material things don't matter a great deal. Things like friendships do, and what you actually do in the activities you engage in, that they matter. Um but well, flash. My dad never liked flash cars or flash women. Uh, he was always very. It's that thing of being nondescript. He, he tended. To, that was his kind of way of doing things. And he, he demanded that of everybody who worked with him. Really, he didn't. He didn't have flash people working for him. Uh, if people mm. had three or four girlfriends, that was up to them. But they kept it. They kept it in their own private lives. Really, they didn't bring it to work. Uh, they didn't uh, generate gossip by doing that. And yet, at the same time, he had a driving ambition, which you know motivated him to keep going back and back to criminality and to kind of constantly looking for the big one that was going to make him a millionaire. But it's almost as if the um, it's almost as if it's a challenge to him as opposed to the actual gathering of that wealth. Yeah, I think that's what it was. It's that cops and robbers things where it's not really about accumulating money because that's quite dull Mm. in itself. It's really about the generating of money and the adventure in getting the money and then seeing if you can keep it for a while, or I mean, what he, mm-hmm. I mean, he did make millions of pounds, but he used to spend it, and he used to spend it quite unwisely, from what I could see a lot of the time. Um, one of the things when I drove for him, and you, you maybe spend two weeks where you're his driver, you hear all his business deals and everything. Also, you see how he spends money, and you think, Christ, the money you waste, the money you give away to people who are never going to help you out. But he seemed to get some pleasure out of being able to do that. Mm-hmm. You go into a household for. Maybe they're do, doing a little favour for someone you know, and you, he goes in there and he finds out they the car's broke or whatever, or they haven't got this. And by the time he's left, he's promised them a car and he's going to send them some money. And then he doesn't look back, really. But he seemed to get some satisfaction out of being able to go into a, someone's world and do that. And then maybe a week later, he might remember they had something he might be interested in. Uh, would they like to do a deal for it or something? It's just little things like that. He seemed to get some pleasure out of that. And do you think that was motivated by a charitability within him or was it that he liked the respect that that gave him back when he was able to help somebody out? I mean, it must have given him something of an ego boost to do what no one else was able to do. Mm. Um, I think that was one thing. Um, but I think he did get a bit of pleasure out of that. I, like I said, when you're in prison and you get used to having so little, you do realise how something can really lift you. And I think mm. he did get pleasure out of thinking you can just lift somebody just by giving them something or helping them out. Um, so there were there were a lot of people where we did like hundreds of people where he's done favours for them, and he would forget he wouldn't go back and 
there were people who willingly help him out and he wouldn't go back. It was almost like there was a pride there. No, I've helped them. They don't need to help me. So when he'd have his problems, if he looked and like he was locked up or whatever, he wouldn't call up on a lot of favours that he could have done, which was, like I said, there seemed to be quite a bit of ego there. Mm. But it was quite a positive ego because good did, good did come out of that. So what happens in Amsterdam in 2001 and what is also the run-up to that back home in the UK with the NCA um, looking for, sorry, the SOCA at the time looking for him? Well, at the time I wasn't working for him at the time, but as I understand it, it was having an eaten way. They, they were under surveillance, which, like I said, is a quite a regular thing. Uh, one of the workers grabbed a camera from a tree and it was a real high-tech camera that my dad hadn't seen him before. It was a real advancement of what the crime squad had been using. Um, there's a bit of a stand-up. There would be a bit of a standoff, but before that, the police raids happened automatically. As soon as they realised the camera's gone, they'd rumbled, they decided to go straight in and the raids happened. And the last 24 hours, my dad's cleaning everything out, getting everything offside. Um, but he's still there when they come. So he gets arrested, he gets put inside. So they raided them in, in the UK and your father was based in the UK at this stage? Yeah, he gets raided yeah. in the UK. They, they, find a gra- they don't find a great deal but they do arrest my dad. He goes on remand. He notices a, a, an issue with the paperwork um, where it's, there's one day missing on the on the remand conditions and he applies for bail that day, gets it, um, and then he, get, he absconds. He disappears to the Netherlands. Um, crime, squad, crime squad, don't know where he is, but in the Netherlands, he starts operating under the name of English John. And he, re, he kind of restarts effectively. Um, so he starts doing exactly what he was doing before, except he's from the Netherlands. He's kind of got a crew in the UK that are doing all the distribution and he's doing all the supply work in the Netherlands. Um, and during that period, there's a guy from Bradford who, who steals, a, he steals a two, it's like nearly a quarter of a million he steals. It's been handed over to be sent to Holland. Um, he steals that, but he doesn't know who he stole it off. Um, my dad later finds out who it is, he traces him and tells him he's going to have to give the money back um, because... One, it's off my dad, and he's more than capable of getting it off him. And the other, it's connect- it's got Irish connections as well, the money. So you kind of a whole army of people could potentially be called in to kind of take this organisation down who's stolen it. Um, so how it does pan out in the Holland, he agrees to he's going to give the money back or pretty much 95% of it. He, he arranges to meet my father at the Docklands in Amsterdam one night. My dad goes, but... Because the guy's been delaying and delaying, it's suspected there's a bit of an issue, there's something going on. So my dad takes a small handgun with him, just on the off chance. And when he does meet him, they drive down to the docks, this guy, David Royal, and he's got um, he's got a series of men, mass men there. Um, they force my dad from the car. Uh, and as he's getting from the car, he just he's very aware that he get if they get him fully away from the car and they shoot him, then they're going to leave him for dead. Whereas if he stays at the car, they're going to be worried about forensics. So at the car, he pulls out his own gun. They see he's doing that and they shoot him. He gets shot in the chest. Um, But rather than go down, he's kind of stunned for a moment, as they are. And then he produces his gun and starts firing. He shoots two of them. The first one goes down, but then he turns around and shoots the main guy, a guy called David Royal. Shoots him in the chest and David Royal shot dead. And then my dad somehow manages to escape to the safe house, even though he's been shot in the chest. Um, and then a few hours later, he phones me in England, asks me, can I get over to Holland quick? There's been a problem. 
And that's... uh, I mean, this is a serious escalation from, um, you know, and I suppose the realities of that world that he was manoeuvring around and negotiating himself as a businessman with, you know, very loyal people working with him and for him. And he was looking after everyone. He was trying to keep his head out of this kind of stuff. And it does show how the only loyalty within that world really is to money. How if your power is threatened in any way, that the bullets come out. And I mean, what you described there sounds like a crime drama, a scene from a crime drama, but it's true and it's the reality. Yeah, up until that point, there have been, I mean, there have been talk of guns to do with other gangs and groups, but not with our group. That that hadn't happened. Um, I don't think there had been a single incident, but we it, it, it intervened in other groups with their um, like issues with guns and threats and all this sort of thing. But this was the first time he'd had it, and it was with a, with an outside gang who he didn't normally mm-hmm. deal with. But they'd, mm-hmm. so it was kind of unforeseen. But all these things do happen through misunderstandings and dealing with people you normally wouldn't deal with. And that's how yeah. he found himself in that situation and why he took the gun along, because he's dealing with someone he, d- he can't be trusted and isn't one of his own people or one of the good people, as my dad likes to call them. So there's two, three bodies in the Docklands in Amsterdam and your father's gone to a safe house, phones you, and you head out? I head out straight away. I think I'm there. He phones me about 10 o'clock in the morning by the evening I'm there. Um, and I get there and... Along the way, I'm thinking, what? because on the phone, you're speaking code, so I'm trying to figure out what's happened. And the best I can come up with is it's been baseball battered, it's been jumped or something by some Dutch gang or something. Something like that's gone on, because he's obviously physically injured. And then you're going into the safe house, um, and it's all quiet as soon as you go in, because usually there's all phones going and there's people. It's absolutely quiet. And he's lying on a stretcher bed. He's kind of bandaged up. And he's half asleep, and I get told he's been shot. Um, and that was a bit of a surprise because I just didn't anticipate that. Um, and then it's waiting. Really what happens from that point is finding out whether he's going to pull through or not. I don't exactly know where the bullet's gone in. It's all I know is some of it's come out through the back. And from what we can figure out, it's kind of brushed by his lungs. Um, and, the, and, it, and he says it's a dum-dum bullet as well. So it's all fragmented. There's these fragments inside. Um, He's had a doctor visit him, who's actually a vet, uh, and his prognosis was, well, you've got 48 hours, and if you can get through that, you, you, you'll be okay. Um, and by the time I got there, so many hours have passed, and so it's just wait and see time, really. Um, and from that point, you think you're going to sit there and you're just going to lie sleeping for 24 hours, but that's not what happens. He stops taking his meds and he sits up, or tries to sit up, and then he starts telling us everything that happened the night before. Uh and he talks about his business deals and uh, getting things back to how they were and what an interruption this is. And um, so it's all very different to what I expected. Um, and that's exactly what happens the next day. There's a, a slight recovery the next day. And his initial response is to get fresh phones on because he's not he's been out of phone contact for like 48 hours. Uh, and in his business, that looks bad, you know, you know, is he dead or is he out of the game or what? He's got to let people know that, no, he's okay. Uh, business is carrying on so get fresh phones on start making phone calls uh, and then deciding who you trust who who you okay knowing where you are who's okay to visit you because he wants visitors he wants people to actually see he's fine um, so he's, the people he trusts are the Dutch at that point he doesn't trust many British people at all because there's a, a lot of grasses in the, those circles so you just trust the Dutch 
He's got a long history with the Dutch going back. So we have all these Dutch visitors come and he starts wrapping up all these deals. He's still on his stretcher bed, still bandaged up. He still can't stand up. And it's, it's like, um, it's like a social gathering. All these people secretly come into the safe house and they all sit. And my dad tells them the story of what happens because they're all desperate to know what the hell happened last night. And he tells them, and then they start talking about their deals. And then some other people will arrive. And before you know it, you've got like 20, 25 people in this, in this safe house. Uh, and they've all, they've all got their reasons for being there. Most of them there are to tie deals up because he's mm. going to have to get out of Holland within hours. Um, so they want to tie their deals up and then get away. And that's what happens meeting by meeting. He, he wraps up all these little deals and they will disappear off. By the day's end, he's quite satisfied. He's got all these deals sewn up. And also, he's still alive as well. And by then, he's able to eat and drink a little as well. So he's feeling better. He's just talked a great deal that day. And he hasn't been taking his meds most of the day. So he's been in pain. Um, but he's managed to get through it. His pain thresholds are very high. Um, and it's not, nothing like I'd never seen. Like I said, I just, I just thought you'd be grateful you're alive, really. You wouldn't be. But that's how important the business was to him. Uh, after all that period, there was no regrets. Because it... Uh, the first night, it did, I did wonder whether he's going to be awake, you know, the following morning. Is he going to die in his sleep? Am I going to wake up and he's not there anymore? Or, but um, it, like I said, it was just absolutely unreal. And like a chess player from his sickbed as such, he starts to plan his next move, which is to get himself down to Spain, out of Holland. He doesn't want to get caught up in a murder investigation or to be linked in any way to this incident in the in the port and or in the UK, so he now has the English authorities after him, and he's possibly going to be caught up in what has happened in Amsterdam. So he needs to get to Spain. That's exactly it. I, I head back to England, and the Dutch people take him down there. Uh, he trusts the Dutch people completely. Um, like I said, the British people not at all. Um, so I disappear to the UK. When I leave, it's a few days have passed by the time I do leave. Uh, and he's standing up, he's got, a, he's got a walking stick and he's shaking my hand, you know, you take care of how you drive, watch who's with you, all that same sort of comments he always makes. But And the next time I see him, he's out in Spain and he's back to what he was doing, which is organising his shipments. And I think from that point, he's mo- mostly going to focus on the hash coming from Spain, uh, but he's not going back to Holland ever again, uh, simply because this is going to bubble up at some point and there's going to bring some problems. And... Uh, He's into a false identity as well. He's known as Graham Penny in Spain, so he's changed his ID again. And he's kind of a businessman based up in Barcelona rather than the Costa del Sol because um, he knows down the Costa del Sol. Again, Costa del Sol, a lot of grasses down there. It's one place he doesn't want to be. Um, so mm. he might do business down there, but he won't stay down there. Uh, so he's stationed up at Barcelona for a long time. And he obviously has this ability, which um, I find fascinating for somebody maybe of his age in particular, to just set up somewhere afresh, to just go somewhere brand new and set yourself up in a life and not feel that draw to home or... Yeah, it's almost like a formula for it. You kind of get a base of a certain type where you're not overlooked and where it's difficult for surveillance to come in on you. Um, so you got a place called Castle of Fells, which was a real sleepy place and a stilted apartment as well. So you're not overlooked by anybody. Um but then he, he just throws the money in, he gets his workers down there, he gets all his little bases and he just sets up. It's just a different place. It's just sunny, really. Mm. Um, and for me, it's safer because Spain, you associate less surveillance. In Holland, a lot of surveillance, especially in Amsterdam. In Spain, there's very little. 
um, your lack of conspiracy laws as well, lack of, uh, lack of police intercepts. Um, so it's, it seems to be he's safer there. He's, mm-hmm. he's still having problems with the bullet wound because the bullet wound, it keeps flaring up, keeps getting infected. Uh, so there's still a problem with that, but he's not concerned. He says he'll sort that out later. Yeah, he's told by somebody, I think, that you need to get those fragments out or they'll kill you from within. Yeah, this is a Swiss doctor, I'm, I'm told, told him this. And a later, a, a doctor in prison would tell him this as well. Um, the idea you've got 10 years, it will turn cancerous in time. Um, so he does plan to get these out. But as time progresses, he realises when he does go to Holland, this is the evidence that shows he was shot first. So he's got that dilemma. If I take the evidence out, they're going to say, well, that could have been off anything. Mm. So he ends up keeping the bullets inside until he eventually does go on trial in Holland a few years later. The mind is going again, like thinking, you know, forward thinking. In January 2003, he's named in the front of a UK newspaper as one of the most, one of the five most wanted. Um, And at that point, he's talking about plans to flee to North Africa to buy himself a... Fancy houses in Morocco. Yeah, that's the plan. He basically he's out he's out of range of all these uh, the police agencies, and he can carry on working from there. And it's sunny; he likes the sun. So, yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. But he never he never uh, gets to pursue that. He gets caught and jailed. I think put into Al Horan prison, um, which I did want to ask you about because I've known I've known a few people who spent time in there. Did you visit him there? What were the conditions like? I, d- I didn't visit him there. I've got plenty of letters from him there. He never complained yeah. about it there. Um, okay. There's a bit of a shithole, as I understand it. As, mm. But he ne- he, one thing when he was inside, he never complained about the prison he was in. He just saw it's, it's part of the experience, really. It's part of, you don't, you don't complain. There's some prison in Madrid, which is supposed to be 10 times worse because it doesn't have any central heating system now. I don't know whether that's well, still the case. It's supposed to be bad, apparently. That's where mm. he goes later for extradition. But that was mm. supposed to be worse, Valdemoro. Um, I did visit so him he's, there. Yeah. He's, he's in prison in, in Spain and all business shut up again. I presume he's trying to run it from within the prison system. He's uh, wanted in Holland. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And he's wanted in the UK. And, uh, you know, he's trapped. So he um, eventually gets... He eventually gets... Uh, extradited is it to Holland from Spain and he's put on trial there yeah and because he's kept these bullet fragments within him as soon as they do an x-ray and they realize he was shot during this incident then all of a sudden his story becomes believable as he's the only live person who was there so is he put on trial for murder up there Jason they they call it manslaughter is what they downgraded it to initially it was murder when they wanted him then it was manslaughter and then they had to accept his plea of self-defense by that point, it, it, we saw all the forensic reports and he could shape the evidence to that. Because as far as he's concerned, it was self-defence. They'd shot him first and it was perfectly reasonable. He, he defended himself. Um, so it, when he was confident about that, I was less confident. I think it, if it goes the wrong way, then... Because um, he did take a gun with him, so that would undermine his plea of self-defence. But it was accepted and they never learned he took a gun with him. But object, I don't think it really mattered that much because... They did intend to kill him. So I think that was fair enough on that one. So how did that go for him after him carrying these bullet fragments inside himself to use in his defence? Well, once the trial's over, it's really you want to get the fragments out, except the Dutch are reluctant to do that. They want to send him to Spain. And as far as they're concerned, the Spanish can pay for that. 
And why do they want to send him to Spain? He's got to go back to uh, complete his sentence there. He got seven okay. years in Spain, you see, so he's got to go back and complete that. Okay. Um, so he does some of it in Holland, which is a lot easier. Uh, so he likes Holland because of you know the books and the education, the central heating. But then he goes back to Spain to complete his sentence. Um, the British can't extradite him from Holland, as I understand it, because it's a conspiracy. And it's not a particularly strong conspiracy even. There's no possession or anything. Um, so he goes to Spain and then he waits for his release and decides whether he's going to uh, stay in Spain or return to the UK. And at that point, I'm hoping he just turns his back on the whole thing. And what age is he at this point, Jason? Maybe about 60 by that point, pushing 60. Yeah, he's, he's kind of, he is getting on. He's a, he's a bit old to be in prison for one thing. Uh, and I know he doesn't complain, but I know it's not easy either. He's, one thing every six weeks, the because of his bullet injury, he starts getting these infections. And so they kind of keep coming up. Every, he, gets, he gets all these antibiotics, gets rid of it, but then it always comes back. So really he needs to get out, see a doctor and just turn his back on it all as far as I'm concerned. And are you having this communication with him? Are you telling him this, your hopes for his sort of whatever future he has left? Well, I'm kind of encouraging these ideas. He says he wants to turn his back on all this shit and all this sort of thing. And he does mention working just with the good people, by which he means like his top 10 contacts and just staying in Spain, doing a few shipments a year and retiring. But it sounds good when he's inside. It's just talk because um, when he does come out the same demands are there and he does have this impulse to need to make a lot of money and uh, to go back to it all again he also has a lot of debt and I think while he's in prison in one way he gets a little bit of luck in that a couple of people die that he owes money to and with them go the the debts which is interesting phenomenon really of the underworld because obviously there's no papers there's no banking systems really a lot of these loans and what are deemed loans are in somebody's head sometimes or they are owed. And, you know, I often see when somebody somebody dies or is shot, the family are left. There's no insurance policies. There's no pensions. You know, I wonder if you if you work it, if you work the whole finances out, are you really actually making more in the long run over a lifetime? Yeah, I mean, I mean, myself and my brother, who I talk to about this sort of thing, is one of the few people I do. We've always of the opinion it's not really worth it. When I go through the old man's contacts and you see how many actually made it and stayed out of prison, there's very few. Most of them end up in prison. A few end up dead early. Um, it's just, it's just no. I don't see the benefits of it, to be honest. The benefit is really being free and seeing your family and everything. Uh, and that's also that's the other thing. It's the cost of your family. A lot of people who live this lifestyle do lose their families or they don't spend time with their children. And all those, the only time these things are really valued is when they're locked up and they don't have them. And once the, when they were there, they're pretty much taken for granted, which I think is a bit of a tragedy. Uh, and it was in my dad's case. He never spent the time with us growing up. He should have done or with his other kids. So that was something of a tragedy, yeah. But it, for him, I don't think it was worth it, the actual experience of a life of crime now. No, I mean, following his, his time in and out of prison, he's in and out like a blue arse fly really over his whole career I mean by 2010 he's back in custody in Amsterdam oh yeah that's the yeah operation downpour um, he sets up a new drugs ring in the UK uh, between Holland Spain and um, UK and this time it's a little bit different because the the police in the UK they had a conspiracy they had to drop because it wasn't strong enough and it seems this time when they go they're going to be a lot stronger and they they team up with the Dutch police as well and they have international uh, intercepts, which they never had before. Uh, and this makes all the difference. 
Um, and also, rather than just following just a few people at my dad's group, they followed loads of them. There's like 10 of them. They've got surveillance on all 10. So it's a real, and this is only class B and class C. So the actual resources used are just disproportionate. Uh, and eventually he's, he's arrested in uh, a farmhouse out in the Netherlands. Uh, and it's not, he hasn't got a big um, load on him. It's like, I think it's 200 amphetamine and 50 hash. It's, it's not a bit, it's not a big load, but they've got him hands on, which is the big thing. But the problem is it's for possession. And in the Holland, that's not a big sentence. Um, so there's all these uh, politics that goes on behind the scenes to get him to the UK where they're going to have to charge him with conspiracy because you can't charge him with possession because that was in Holland. So it ends up a giant conspiracy case with you've got 10 defendants, um, you've got Birmingham court being adapted to accommodate everybody and all these barristers and everything. You've got international intercepts and you've got all these experts coming around the world to dispute these intercepts as well because the general feeling was that they were quite corrupt, the intercepts the police had used. Uh, and that's something that's going to be talked about in court is these intercepts. And your your father took control of that defence for all eight of them and convinced them all to kind of go with his plan, which was to challenge this. And this weirdly brings in your legitimate work outside of what you had been doing for your father, because you had done some comic books and told a story within that. And you had put in uh, details of this sort of illegitimate intercepts and bugs and stuff. And he wanted to use that as part of it. Um, now, when they went to court, they sort of, the prosecution or the the, the judge overruled and, and allowed those intercepts in, at which point they were going to defend themselves and they decided they'd all plead guilty. But in the days beforehand, you were shown his defence, which unfortunately was drawing you into his world and expecting you to perjure yourself in court. How did you feel when you saw that? I mean, you had done a lot for your father over the years. You'd done a lot to keep up the relationship and that must have felt like a big betrayal. Yeah, at the time that was. Um, my rationale at the time, not because I wasn't shaken by it, was he had, he was kind of, he had like 10 families and 10 defendants and he was managing all of that. And I think he saw it as brinkmanship. He had to threaten everything he had to in order to get the best deal. And I think that's what he believed. Um, for me, the notion I would perjure myself so obviously like that was just, that was kind of a, it was a bit of a wake up call that you kind of, anyone could be used. So that was a, and I, I didn't, I wasn't bitter about it or blame my dad for that. I just think that's part of the world he's in. That's what people do. Um, mm. Unfortunately, I was the only piece he had to play sort of thing. Virtually everyone he knew was a criminal. I was one of the few people who wasn't. Uh, so I just think he was doing what he had to do and he probably believed it wouldn't come to that. But for me, it didn't seem that way. Uh, but mm. it was a wake-up call for me that, that there was a time, reached a time where I couldn't keep helping him like I had been and supporting him. There's a point where you just got to say, no, that's it now. Um, I stepped back many years before, but this was the one where you say, no, that's it. Um, mm. So we're still father, son, but with that relationship, that has to go now. Do you mean the business relationship or the deeper sort of connection? It, it was really the, the support. I mean, I'd helped him on the, on the case to actually, you know, with paperwork and uh, uh, in, disencrypting the, uh, the intercepts and all this sort of thing. And there was always things to do for him, but it was a, a, a never-ending list. 
and you realise if I'm not doing it, he's only going to have someone else do it. Uh, I know I want to help him. Really, I've got my own life to lead, and so you know, really, I need just to step back and just leave him to it because he does this again and again. It's just the way he is, and he can't really help it. But there's no reason why I should be there now. And do you think that was overall part of the personality that had led him into criminality, had kept him in criminality, and had sort of, you know, all this time he's been in it, he spent his lifetime in and out of jail, coming back out, setting up again, hoping for the big one. Did he ever talk about not being involved in criminality, about retiring? Did he have hopes and aspirations for his future that didn't involve drug dealing? Or was he just addicted to it, as I said to you in the beginning? I think he did love this lifestyle where anything was possible and very quickly as well. And I think there's not many professions that promise you that, that you can do everything you want to do and there's unlimited money and there's just, there's nothing, I think he, yeah, there's just a certain addictive quality to it. And it's a very easy business to work in, I think. In respect, you're just buying, you're just buying a product low and selling it high and you've got the mechanics of moving it, but it's not, it's not that sophisticated really. And when you mm. boil it down and you get familiar with it and you do it year after year, it's just, you're just trying to be very efficient and very disciplined and to trying to remove all the risk factors from it, I suppose. Um, but yeah, but he just did love this life, this adventure he had. Um, but he didn't dislike any aspect of it. I think he liked the, the, the court trials. I think he did like that as well. The actual challenge mm. of you've got an enemy and you're taking them on with all their resources and you're going to beat them. I think he liked that as well because he did beat them sometimes and he got a tremendous satisfaction out of doing that. Um, but, and that also the prison time, that was also when you're serving your time, that was also a period where you're getting stronger. You're kind of accumulating more contacts. You're educating yourself. You're growing and improving. So when you do go out, it's going to be easier next time. You're going to be better. And I think there's also that aspect. It's like a tremendous game for him. Um, but for most people, when you look at the consequences of that, you just you just wouldn't dream of doing it. It's not like the fantasy, but in reality, it's uh, you wouldn't want to live that. But he, he did enjoy that. This time, this was his last... Uh time in custody and he became sick. Um, even in his sickness at the end, I think he suffered from cancer. He he believed he could still run the business. Yeah, we need to, he still had aspirations to one last big one. Um, day to day, he was, he was buying and selling and uh, working with his daughters, doing this business. But in the background, I mean, that was really a front in the background. He had that ideas for bringing more things in and having one last big one. And it might be he wanted to deliver on a lot of promises to help people when he went to be remembered and this sort of thing. Um, but a lot of it was just um, that thing where you wake up in the morning, there's so much to do and so much possible, you're absolutely full of energy. So even though he had the cancer, he would be up early and he'd work long days still. And to look at him, you wouldn't know he had cancer. It was just it was just the same old guy he'd always been, never complained about any pain. He just kind of soldiers on, worked hard, worked long. And... Um, but he always had to have this dream of one last big one. And that was the one I feared was that he's, he's riddled with cancer and he gets caught in the Mediterranean or whatever. And he ends up uh, dying in prison. That was the big fear. But he, he didn't. He died in 2015. And did he show any in the run up to his death and the immediacy before his death? Did he show any remorse? Did he show any sort of um, did he speak to you about maybe missing out on aspects of your life and not being there for you or? No, he didn't really live with any sort of regret that way. And he was always like that. He never complained, never looked back. That was one thing with my dad, uh, which is something I always do. You look back and you 
you use the past and learn from. Uh, he never really did that. It was always, right, that's over, that's done with, right, we'll start again. And that was his mentality. Um, so he never had that that part of him that regretted doing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he gets arrested for so many things, but it's a small percentage compared to the highs of what you get away with. You might get done for one load, but you, you, there's hundreds you've got away with. Uh, or same with the bank robberies, there's dozens you've got away with, you get caught on one. But you still got the highs of all those other things you're going to remember, they stay with you. And it was always of that thinking, all these experiences, when you're locked up, they're not taken away from you, you kind of, they're with you all the time. So he kind of did, he got a lot of pleasure out of the things he did do, but no regrets. I think the latter part of your book deals with your search for answers about what made him be what he was. Um, But just a final question for you. Like, not many people write books about this stuff and name names and come out with these stories. There's always this sort of immersion. You're supposed to keep the secrets. You always said there you knew how to keep your mouth shut. So, I mean, this book is a fascinating and pretty unique insight into that world. Um, Being the son of such a major criminal, being within the operation somewhat yourself, um, and then how you dealt with your own life and your own private life outside that. But did you have any kickback from anybody about doing this book or did you ever feel fearful about writing it? Or I had, re- I had reservations. My reservations were people hearing about the book before the book comes out and they read it. I didn't have reservations. I wasn't concerned once I'd read it, it was hearing about the book, the idea I would do a book. Uh, that was one concern I had. So I did keep the book quiet as quietly as I possibly could. And I decided in writing the book, there were people I would name and people I wouldn't. The people who are active, they're, they're all under aliases. And that on murder thing still stands. But the people who've deceased, some of them I checked with families, they were fine with that. Uh, people he's convicted with or people have turned grass, I'm fine with putting them in as well. Uh, I'm obviously f- fine with putting myself in and my father in, that's that's okay. Um so really, there's a, there's a series of people who are under aliases. And I think it was before the book came out, they were in touch. They, they had learned about the book. Uh, when you do a book, you have to do Twitter and everything. So I did have people in touch saying, what's all this book business? And I explained. And surprisingly, they were, very, they were okay with it. There's a couple of mm. people who had concerns, but they were like, look, you, your dad's son, we know, you, you know you've been around. You keep your mouth shut about the right things. He says, we trust you. And that was kind of, that was a surprise and a bit of a relief as well. Uh, and I think now they will have read the book. They say, well, yeah, I did, I did the right thing. I've named people where I should name them and can. Mm-hmm. And the play, there were certain places where they're not named. And I think that's the way it should be. Um, and I, th- I think the good thing, from, I suppose, from the criminal side is there's a bit of a social document. The names don't have to be the real names. But there was a social document of that period of the 90s of drug dealing and smuggling and how a crime boss really works. Um, I mean, what, one thing that bothered me when you read crime books, they're always the sources are always the police sources, and that's mostly, I suppose, practically that's what they have to be. But I always thought when I worked with my dad years ago, there wasn't a book which showed the other side from the inside. And I thought that'd be a hell of a book if someone wrote that one day. And it's like mm. 15 years later, and my dad's passed, and a lot of people have gone. And I thought I could do this. As, um, there's only a few people I have to be wary of, and be quite clear put them under very good aliases. Um, so it kind of worked out that way. So I'm kind of happy with the book. Uh, 
And I think people out there are happy with the book. They will have read it. If they had a problem, they would have got in touch by now. But the key people I was concerned with, they've been in touch and they're good. See, I suppose it is really always the business of crime, isn't it? Because it is a business and uh, it is part, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, of the economy of the world. And, um, you know, the money slushes around. And it seems to me that for all the money that slushed around with your father, there wasn't anything left at the end of it, was there? No, I think he was quite happy with that, to be honest. Uh, I I mean, I suppose at the end he'd like to have left something. All along the way, he didn't want to accumulate money. Especially Mm. the last 10 years, the idea you'd get a pocker on you and they'd try and take whatever you... And he used to smile at some of the villains where they'd they'd set up a massive house in Surrey as, you know, big targets to let them know, you know, this is what you come for. And the pocket, would, he used to think that was crazy, the idea you'd leave. The pocket, of course, is the proceeds of crime case. Yeah, and he was he was always very wary of that. If he was ever going to make any money, he'd put it abroad. He wouldn't be in this country. Or he'd set up mm. abroad. But at the end, he left nothing. But my thinking was, he left a great story. Uh, and mm. it wasn't, the material thing didn't really matter that much to me, but I did want to tell his story. So I think that's why he left me. Uh, and I wanted to tell it for his grandchildren. That was another thing. And also, there, so there was a social document as well. I did think this, it deserves to be told this period where otherwise it's just uh, accounts by journalists who have never lived in that world and can only get so close to it. And they often mm-hmm. are reply, relying on these police sources that sometimes are good, but sometimes aren't very good at all. So I thought this would be something a little bit different and, a, and mm-hmm. something quite true. And ultimately and finally, Jason, you loved your father. Yeah, great deal. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that doesn't change one bit. I kind of... You know, I kind of accept him flaws, his brilliance and his flaws. I think you love somebody, that's what you do. You don't just say, I just like the best bits. You kind of accept the flaws as well. So I accept the flaws and the errors, but I do kind of admire the brilliance. And if that brilliance it could be named in a different direction, the world, you know, it would have been a different place for us, I think. Thank you very much, Jason Wilson. OK, thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.